So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6 because there are dragons waiting for us there. And while you're turning there, let me say happy Mother's Day to all the moms. Make sure you honor your mother today. Tell her that you love her. Give her a call. Um, And to those who see this as a sad and perhaps a very difficult day because your mom is gone or because maybe the relationship is strained or maybe you didn't have a good mother growing up or maybe you desperately want to be a mom but you can't get pregnant. To all of you who are sad and grieving, to all of you that this is a difficult day, know that Jesus is close to the brokenhearted. You can pour your heart out to him. He is near. Okay, Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be reminded today that God is holy and glorious. And those are the two undomesticated attributes of God that we're going to look at today. And if you're, going to, if you're a preacher and you're going to preach on God's holiness and you are going to preach on God's glory, you have to spend some time in Isaiah chapter 6, right? Because Isaiah 6 is like the OT, OG of God's holiness and glory, right? And what the prophet Isaiah will tell us is that God reveals his glory and holiness so that we would run to him, not from him. God reveals his holiness. He reveals his glory to us so that we would run to him, not run away from him. Now, that may not be what you think of when you think of God's holiness. We tend to think of God's holiness and his white-hot glory as something that should scare the liver out of us, right? And apart from Christ, they will scare the liver out of you. Without Jesus, God's holiness and glory will scare the liver out of you. And if you haven't repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, you need to be scared and you need to repent because you're going to stand before him one day and give an account of your life. But you can place your faith and trust in Jesus that he lived a perfect life in your place, died for your sins on the cross. He was raised from the dead and he ascended to God's right hand where he's ready to be your advocate and high priest forever. So trust in him even now. I know I'm doing that backwards. People used to do altar calls at the end of the sermon. Why not do it at the beginning? You can be born again today. Come to Jesus. But God's holiness is actually an invitation to us, to those who have turned to Christ, who are hoping in Christ alone. It's an invitation to come close to God and to enjoy the holy God who forgives sinners. As Paul Tripp says, any explanation of the holiness of God must lead us to seek and celebrate his grace. God reveals his holiness to us, not as a warning that we should run from him in eternal terror, but as a welcome to us so that we would run to him where weak and failing sinners always find grace that lasts forever. 
And that's exactly what happened to the prophet Isaiah. He saw the splendor of God's majestic holiness and glory. And surprisingly, he didn't run away from God, did he? He saw his sin. He knew his sin. He cried out, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live with a bunch of people who have unclean lips. But he wasn't obliterated, was he? God didn't nuke Isaiah or blow him to smithereens. Isaiah actually experienced grace. I would say that he even celebrated it. God made the first move toward Isaiah. And it wasn't to nuke Isaiah. God actually moved toward Isaiah, a woe-is-me, self-professed man of unclean lips. And if you can believe it, he was gracious to him. And I hope you do believe it, because God does the same thing for you, Christian. And as I explain God's holiness and glory today, it should cause each one of us to seek and to celebrate his grace. Not run from him, but rather run to him in all his resplendent, majestic, glorious, white, hot holiness. I mean, imagine that, running into the white, hot holiness of God and not being blown to smithereens. Imagine that. That's the gospel. We can do that because of Jesus. We can do that because there is a hot burning coal that cleanses even the worst of sinners. So Isaiah chapter 6, if you haven't turned there, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God's grace is all over this passage. Do you see it? it it's like glitter. His grace is just everywhere. And you get it all over you with the first 11 words. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So this was about 740 BC. King Uzziah is dead. There's unrest. There's unknown. The Assyrians are flexing their muscles on the political scene. And Tiglath-Pileser III, the Assyrian king, was on a roll. He was one of many, many vicious and brutal Assyrian kings that ruled in the ancient Near East. The Assyrians were wicked. I just started watching uh, the Book of Boba Fett, and it was also on the Mandalorian, where they had the stormtrooper helmets on stakes outside the cities. The Assyrians did that to people. The Assyrians would cut off their enemies' heads and put them on poles and line the cities. These people were wicked. And so Tiglath-Pileser III is the king when Isaiah has this vision. He was one of many, many vicious, brutal Assyrian kings that ruled in the ancient Near East. Here's a relief from one of his palaces. It depicts him stepping on the heads of his enemies. 
This tells you everything you need to know about Tiglath-Pileser III. He wanted artists to capture him smashing his enemy's skulls, not sitting in a chair looking regal like some leaders do, but smashing people's heads. Tiglath-Pileser III also developed the first real advanced professional military in the ancient Near East. Here's how one historian describes it. The army was an integrated fighting force of infantry, cavalry, and such special forces as slingers and archers. It was the first army to systematically combine engineering and fighting techniques. Its engineers developed siege engines, built bridges, dug tunnels, and perfected supply and communication systems. Its widespread use of iron weaponry enabled it to put large numbers of soldiers into the field. In fact, Tiglath Pileser III is mentioned in 1 Chronicles 5.26, I think is the verse. The verse. Um, he's also called Pol, his name P-U-L. So he's mentioned in the Bible. This king and his army are flexing their muscles at Isaiah and company. And so it's an unstable time in Israel because the king has died. There's crazy, wacko, evil, sick, sick politicians on the march with their advanced armies threatening your nation. And it's during this time that Isaiah the prophet sees the majestic Lord, Yahweh, high and lifted up. That's grace. I told you grace was all over this passage. In the midst of political chaos and threats from brutal outsiders, Isaiah sees Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, high and lifted up. It reminds me of something Old Testament scholar Alec Motier said. The vision of the enthroned God is the great stabilizing factor in life. And it's so true, isn't it? Yahweh. Seeing Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, high and lifted up is just what Isaiah needed. And it's just what we need on Mother's Day. We don't need another sermon about moms. I mean, moms are great. I love my mom. I love that my wife is the mother to our children. But what we need more than anything else, especially with all the crazy things happening in our world today, what we need more than anything else is to see the Lord high and lifted up. It's what we always need on Sunday morning, isn't it? And it's what Isaiah needed in the unstable times that he found himself after all, Isaiah is the prophet of God. He's the one who speaks God's word to God's people. And God graciously allows Isaiah to get a glimpse of his glory. And so this passage oozes with grace. If you want a passage in the Bible that stresses the grace of God, Isaiah 6 is the one. Now, I know, I know, we come to Isaiah 6 to focus on God's holiness. And we should. But don't miss the grace that's here. Grace is everywhere. And I want to show you today that this is a passage to turn to in order to not just see the holiness of God, but to see the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God. 
So what was it like for Isaiah to see the Lord? It's some sort of vision. He's probably in Solomon's temple when he sees this. But what did Isaiah actually see? Well, first, Isaiah tells us that the train of Yahweh's robe filled the temple. So we we typically think of a train of a garment like a bride's wedding dress that follows behind her or the train of a queen's dress. But that's not the best way to translate this Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word for the hem of a garment. So this is like the hem or the edge of a skirt or dress, not this long flowing train. And it's jaw-dropping because if the hem of Yahweh's robe and garment fills the whole temple, then how big is he? If the hem of his robe fills the whole temple, how majestic, how grand, how massive, how great, how big is our God? This should humble us. It's why Isaiah responds the way he does. It's why he cries out, woe is me. Who is this God that we're dealing with, Grace? Well, we are dealing with a God who has weird creatures with six wings who are a part of his posse. That's who. That's who we're dealing with. These creatures, which Isaiah calls seraphim here, which are weird to us, but obviously normal to God. Have you thought about that? We read this passage like, oh, these creatures seem so weird, and God's like, they're very normal to me. These creatures have six wings. And so with two wings, they cover their faces, probably meaning that they don't want to pry into the things and the ways of God. They don't cover their ears because they need to hear what the Lord says, and because Isaiah tells us that they're singing this song back and forth to one another. But they cover their eyes, meaning they don't want to pry into what God is like or pry into his mysterious ways. They listen, not speculate about God. Something for us to think about. We often want to look into the mysterious ways of God and get all of our questions answered, don't we? Why are you doing this, God? Why is this happening? But we should take a cue from these creatures And simply trust his word. Listen to his word. Just some food for thought. And then Isaiah says with two wings they cover their feet. This means that they don't choose their own path. They follow the Lord. They are at his bidding. Again, food for thought. And then with two wings they fly around ready to go anywhere and do anything the Lord says. So Isaiah tells us that he saw these seraphs or seraphim, that's the Hebrew plural form, standing above the Lord. In Isaiah 37, Isaiah also mentions some other heavenly beings called cherubim that surround God's throne. But we don't know how many seraphim there are because Isaiah does not tell us. But in Revelation 5.11, John says that there are myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of angels around God's throne. So there are lots of these angelic beings, millions. I mean, think about it. Millions of angelic creatures that stand and fly around God's throne. Millions of creatures like this with six wings. Wow. 
But what's interesting is that other than here in Isaiah 6, the term seraphim only occurs four or five other times in the Old Testament. In Numbers, Isaiah, and I think maybe in Deuteronomy. In those passages, seraphim are snakes or fiery snakes. They often get translated. So get this, y'all. These seraphim are likely some sort of flying, fiery serpents around God's throne. And what are flying, fiery serpents? Dragons. Yahweh has myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of flying dragon-type creatures around his throne. Rub that into your pores. Let that simmer in the crock pot of your mind. It's possible, and we're speculating here, it's possible that these creatures that fly around God's throne and cry out, holy, 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 are some kind of dragon. Serpents with six wings. And people think the Bible is boring. People think God's holiness is boring. And maybe... Maybe this is why the Lord tells the serpent in Genesis 3 that now he is going to crawl on his belly all the days of his life. We're just thinking out loud here. Maybe it's like you don't get those wings anymore. Perhaps. The next time you get all stressed out about what's happening in our world, you might want to rub this idea into your pores. Jesus has myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of flying dragon-type creatures around his throne. That might help you calm down. Because what does the preacher of Hebrews say about these angelic beings? In Hebrews 1.14, he says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Christian, this means that we have myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of angels and weird creatures with six wings that minister to and serve us. What kind of God are we dealing with here, Grace? One who has six-winged dragon creatures who are in his posse and ready to minister to and serve and protect you. And not just that, there's even other weird creatures too. Listen to the Apostle John out of Revelation 4. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Six wings, two to cover their feet, two to cover their eyes, two to fly around. And these four living creatures look like a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. And they, have these, they too have six wings and eyes all over their bodies, eyes on the inside and the outside of their wings. And this is wild stuff. This is, this is Star Wars material. These are creatures you expect to see in Jabba the Hutt's palace, right? But understand this. We think that these angelic beings with bodies and wings full of eyes are freaky and weird. We think these angelic beings are freaky and that they would fit right in on Star Wars. But the truth of the matter is that we're the freaky ones. We're 
the weird ones. Why? Because we rebel against God. Because we sin all the time. And that's freaky to these angels. And so when you contrast sinful humanity with these seraphim, who are these glorious and majestic and obedient, albeit weird-looking servants of God who always obey and always do what God commands, and you contrast them with us and with sinful humanity, and even with those who have been redeemed and who are in union with Christ, but yet we still sin every day, multiple times a day, who do you think should get the inheritance that Hebrews 1.14 spoke of? Well, it's a no-brainer. It should be these creatures. It's shocking that they do not have dominion over creation because they have never sinned. It's shocking that we believers will inherit the new heavens and new earth because we sin all the time. But that's not how grace works. And that's why grace is amazing. And so all the myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of six-winged creatures want you to know this morning that God reveals his glory and holiness so that we would run to him and not from him. As Derek Thomas said, God's presence is his most treasured gift. It is at the heart of what he promises our covenants to his people. You are with me. To be with God is his most treasured gift. That's why Isaiah got invited there in the first place. To be with God. To be cleansed. But there's more to see and hear here. So look at verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So these six-winged dragon-type creatures, if that's what they are, tell us that God is holy. Notice they cry out in this threefold repetition, holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew, it's kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. The Hebrew language uses this threefold repetition, this threefold expression to express what is superlative and what is the totality of something. Again, to quote Alec Motier, he says, Holiness is supremely the truth about God, and his holiness is in itself so far beyond human thought that a super superlative has to be invented to express it. Holiness is God's hidden glory. Glory is God's all-present holiness. So holiness is God's hidden glory, and glory is God's all-present holiness. Or as Ralph Davis says, glory is what holiness is like when it's visible. Glory is holiness with a wrapper around it. And so the Hebrew word here, holy, kadosh, that they speak three times. What it means, it means to be separate. It means to be different or to be set apart. In other words, God is other. You could say different, different, different. Other, other, other. Set apart, set apart, set apart. Not like us, not like us, not like us. That's the idea of holy. So holy is not first a moral category, okay? Understand that. God's holiness is not first a moral category. That's how most people typically think of God's holiness or the word holy. 
as if it were first and foremost a moral category. But God's holiness is a summary of all his attributes. When we say God is holy, we are saying that God is not like us at all. And when you consider all the attributes of God that we've seen in this series, then you get it. You know God is not like us. He is nothing like us. We are not like him. He is in a category all by himself. That's holiness. There's no one like him. Even these creatures that fly around his throne who have never sinned, they are not like him. That's holiness. God is holy, which means that he is separate. And this is true of God in his moral purity because he is without sin. It's true of him in his moral purity. That is an element of God's holiness. But it's also true in every other way in which God has made himself known to us. He is holy without sin. He is holy in all his attributes. He is other in all his attributes. He is in another category altogether in all his attributes. There's no one like him. God alone is God. He is not like us, but just a bigger and better version of us. He's in a different category altogether. That's holy. And his holiness is simply his godness. All that God is, 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 and that is, is holy. Let me say that again. All that God is, 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 and that is, is holy. His holiness is God in all his attributes, in all his works, in all his ways. Everything he is and everything he does is holy. He's, and he's not just holy, he's holy, holy, holy. Each time that Hebrew word kadosh is used by the seraphim, it turns up the power and the force of the previous use of the word holy, of kadosh. God alone is God. And yes, Holiness implies God's purity, his perfection, his sinlessness. He is without sin. He is pure. He is perfect in all his ways. But holiness, kadosh, is not primarily a moral category in the Old Testament. And here's why. Because all kinds of things are called holy in the Old Testament. Pots are holy, pans are holy, dishes are holy, priests are holy, even cult prostitutes are called holy. The same Hebrew word kadosh is used in Job 36.14 to describe cult prostitutes. Hardly a moral description, but a very immoral description, right? It just means that their hearts were so wicked and wayward that they had set apart cult prostitutes to be used in worship. They were considered holy, meaning they were set apart for a function and a purpose. So when we say that God is holy, we are saying that he is other. He is separate from all creation. It means that there is a true creator and creature distinction. It means he is not like us. Everything about him is holy. His grace is holy. His grace is different, isn't it? It's different from our grace. His mercy is holy. His mercy is different from our kind of mercy, isn't it? His wrath is holy. It's different than our kind of wrath. 
His love is holy. His wisdom is holy. Very different from our love and our wisdom. But God is not just holy, Isaiah is telling us. He is glorious too, expansively glorious. The seraphim tell us that God's glory fills the whole earth. I've told you many times before that God's glory is heavy. That's the Hebrew word here. It's the Hebrew word kavod. In scripture, it means weight. It means heaviness or weight, importance. Like people like in the 60s and 70s used to say what? Whoa, man, that's heavy. When you drop some important weighty truth on them, they would say that's heavy. That's the idea behind God's Glory. There is a weightiness to it, a heaviness to it. And Isaiah, the seraphim, tell us here, it's the Lord, Yahweh, whose glory or weightiness fills the earth. It's not just any run-of-the-mill ancient Near Eastern God that the seraphim are singing about. They're talking about Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. That's God's covenant name, Yahweh. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke says this about the name Yahweh. God's name is a sentence, and in his own mouth means, I am. And in the mouth of Israel, he is. His personal name paradoxically invites the hearer to enter into intimacy in his protective nearness and to stand in awe of him in his eternal being in contrast to human mortality. He is both I am here and I am eternal. In its function, God's name suggests his pragmatic presence. This sense of being, this sense of God's being can be captured in the English phrase, I am who I am for you. His simplicity shows there is no shadow of variability in him. God is dependable. He can be counted upon. Moses asks, what is your name? God answers, I am who I am. That is, so pure in sublimity that you can count on me. And so when the seraphim tell us that it's Yahweh's glory that fills the earth, it means that God himself is inviting all the earth from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue to come enter into his intimacy, enter into his protective nearness. It means all sinners are invited to come through substitutionary atonement and to stand in awe of him. It means that Yahweh offers his pragmatic presence, which is something that Isaiah and company desperately needed because Tiglath, Pileser III, was breathing down their neck. It means that Yahweh could be depended upon, that he's so pure, so holy, his sublimity can be counted upon. Listen, Isaiah 6 is in the Bible so that you would know that God is inviting you to enter into his protective nearness. Isaiah 6 is in the Bible so that you would know that God is inviting you to come to him through the substitutionary atonement of his own son, Jesus, and then to stand in awe of him. Isaiah 6 is in the Bible so that you would know that God offers you his very pragmatic presence. Isaiah 6 is in the Bible so that you would know that God can be depended upon. So that you would hear God saying to you, my holiness, 
my glory is so pure in sublimity that you can count on me. Because he is the Lord of hosts, the seraphim tell us. It's the word for armies. He is Yahweh of armies. Yahweh who has all these six-winged creatures who are in his army. Compared to, yeah, innovative army, Tiglath-Pileser III, but your advanced army with all of its new war techniques is no match for the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies. And that's what Isaiah and company desperately needed to hear. But what is God's sublime glory like? Recall that Moses, he asked Yahweh, can I see your glory? How did God respond? It might surprise you. In Exodus 33, Moses said, please show me your glory. And Yahweh said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So when Moses asks God, can I see your glory? God shows up and declares his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his steadfast love. This is why Christianity has to be true. Because only God would save sinners. Only God would save people who rebel against him. So God's very nature is mercy, grace, love, goodness, kindness. And God shows his glory, the weightiness of who he is, through saving sinners like us. He doesn't show his glory by nuking us with his power or by blowing us to smithereens. He shows his glory, his weightiness, his heaviness, his importance by sending his son and saving people who don't deserve to be saved. That's his glory. That's his heaviness. That When you think about Jesus dying in your place for your sins, you should stand before him in awe and say, whoa, man, that's heavy. Because it is. Because it's God's glory. God's love is glory. Moses' request of please show me your glory is answered with this description of God in Exodus 33. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. When Moses says, please show me your glory, God does not show up and flex his muscles and be like, doesn't do that. He says, I'll let my goodness pass before you. Who is this God that we're dealing with? Because in my mind, I want to show my power by flexing my muscles, by showing you my wrath and my anger. And he says, you want to see my glory, my power, my heaviness? I'll be kind to you and merciful. I'll show you my goodness. And so God's mercy and his grace and his steadfast love and his faithfulness and his forgiveness are his glory. And this is the weighty glory that fills all the earth like the seraphim said. It's this, God saves sinners. 
That's what the seraphim are singing. That's the glory that fills the earth. And they prove that Yahweh is serious about his grace and mercy, serious about saving sinners by what happens next with Isaiah. God will demonstrate his love by burning Isaiah's lips. And I'm going to have to speed up because I've still got a page to go here, okay? So bear with me. Look at verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So Isaiah sees Yahweh in all his glory, in all his white-hot holiness, and what does he do? He crumbles, he collapses, he is undone. He sees his sin. He knows his heart. He cries out that he and all Israel were unclean. And this is a good thing. It's good to have your heart exposed like this. As Ralph Davis says, we have here a sample of one of God's finest gifts. And this is one of God's best gifts to you as a Christian, to give you an overpowering and increasing sense of how total and filthy your corruption is, of how deeply tangled and devious you are. Why is this a good thing? Because we see who we really are. Because we don't think we're that bad. At least I'm not as bad as that guy. It's good to see our sin, not to, not to render us miserable, not to just be reminded of what great sinners we are. We are reminded of our sins so that we will be reminded of what a great Savior we have. That's why it's a good thing we see what a great Savior Jesus is. God didn't just want Isaiah to see his sin. He could have just left him there. He wanted him to see it and then to experience forgiveness. He wanted Isaiah's lips to be burned to be made clean, to experience grace, to be set free. But notice in verse 6 that the seraph takes the burning coal from the altar and he places it on Isaiah's lips. I believe this would have conjured up in Isaiah's mind, in the mind of the audience, the altar of burnt offering at the temple that was outside in the temple court. Recall that on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take incense from the altar of the burnt offering and bring it inside, and he would take it into the Holy of Holies, and then the smoke of the incense would cover the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. That's why smoke fills the temple here where Isaiah is, because this incense from the burnt offering is being brought in. And so this burning coal is brought in from the altar, it symbolizes the place of sacrifice, a place where a substitute was offered for the sins of the people. In other words, Isaiah experienced atonement, he experienced forgiveness because the coal from the burnt offering, from the altar of sacrifice, is then placed on his lips. It's humorous, I think, because the angel says, this has touched your lips. Duh, I know that. They're burning. Why did he say that? Like he know, I know they've touched my lips. It's because we need an outside, objective voice to speak pardon and forgiveness to us, to give us assurance. We can't trust our own subjective feelings and thoughts. We need an outside force to come and say, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. 
The burning coal is meant to portray the altar of the burnt of offering where lambs were slain for sin and where the burning incense came from. All of this, of course, is a picture, albeit in 740 B.C. in a prophetic vision, a picture of the cross where Jesus died. The reason Isaiah can be declared clean and experience forgiveness is because the altar and burning coals are symbols of substitutionary atonement. It's why the smoke filled the temple. It's a foreshadowing of the cross. The burning coal on Isaiah's lips is a preview of the cross of Jesus. It's God saying to sinners, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. Welcome into the joy producing. You might want to dance. You might drop to your knees. You might just stand there mouth agape, presence of God. The burning coal and the incense and the smoke reminded Isaiah and company that God reveals his glory and holiness so that we would run to him, not from him. In other words, God can't get close enough to his people. He makes a way possible for sinners to come into his presence. And you see this with Isaiah. God didn't invite Isaiah into his presence simply to scare the liver out of him. If God wanted to scare Isaiah, he could have done that, and this story would end here. God wanted Isaiah to see and enjoy his presence, his glory, his holiness, and then to send him to preach to the nations of Israel and Judah and the nations of the world. But in order for Isaiah to do that, like all of us, it requires atonement. It requires a substitutionary death. It requires the burning coal from the burnt offering. It requires the perfect life and death of Jesus on the cross for our sins. And so Isaiah 6 is an invitation to us not to a haunted house, not to just be frightened and terrified by God's holiness. Isaiah 6 is an invitation to forgiveness, an invitation to grace, an invitation for all the earth to enjoy the Lord. Understand this, God's holiness and God's glory, like every attribute of God, is an invitation to come and know him better to enjoy him more and more. It's why we're doing this series on the attributes of God, so that you could enjoy God more. His holiness is an invitation to come into his presence through his son Jesus, not to run from him, but to acknowledge our sin and then simply collapse on Jesus. Listen, God didn't want Isaiah to run away, and he doesn't want us to run from him either. As Kelly Capick said, run from him? That is the last thing he desires. Run to him. This is to understand the glory of the gospel. The glory of the gospel is to see your sin and to run to Jesus. But if you're like me, my tendency is to run away from God. I understand his holiness, I understand my sinfulness, and the two shall never meet. So oftentimes, I run away from God. But running to God and feeling the warmth of his fatherly embrace when you are dirty and smelly and stinking of sin is the glory of the gospel, the weightiness, the heaviness. Drawing near to God at any time is the glory of the gospel. Drawing near to God through your high priest, Jesus, is the glory of the gospel. And that's why Isaiah 6 is in the Bible. Not to scare the liver out of you, Christian, but to draw you in. Let's close with something else Paul Tripp said. The holiness of God should frighten you, while at the same time it should give you rest. 
It should both blow your mind and form the basis of how you make sense of everything. It should expose the darkest parts of you while leading you into the light and hope of life. It should stop you in your tracks with awe and wonder and provide the tracks for your life to run on. It should confront you with the distance between what you are and what God is while making you want to draw near him. While God's holiness exposes your moral weakness, it should also make you run toward his grace. Let's run to his grace this morning. And then like Isaiah, let's take this message to the Central Coast. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for how glorious you are. We are so undeserving. We know our sin. Thank you that you don't want to just make us feel miserable because of our sin, but you want us to look to you. It's why you came. Why wouldn't you want us to look to you, to run to you? Thank you that you don't keep us at a distance. You don't stiff arm us. Thank you that you don't nuke us and blow us to smithereens. Thank you that your arms stand wide open, calling sinners to come home. And so we want to run to you this morning, Lord, and say, have mercy on us, forgive us, and help us to enjoy you, to enjoy your grace, and then to go share this grace with others. Because there are people on the Central Coast who should be scared to death. May we give them the good news that God saves sinners. In your name we pray.